Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Those of you who are familiar with my garden radio shows here in Northern California, which I've been doing since 1982, might be wondering, well, what's the reason for this podcast? Well, even though I'm fond of saying all gardening is local, Garden Basics with Farmer Fred will be reaching out to gardeners wherever they may happen to be with garden tips and growing advice that apply just about anywhere. We'll strive to explain garden jargon in terms anyone can understand. And we'll be talking to garden experts from throughout the world who will share their vast plant and soil knowledge with us. And we'll be answering your gardening questions. Think of us as your one-room schoolhouse for growing your backyard garden of fruits, vegetables, and oh yeah, flowers that attract the garden good guys, beneficial insects, and pollinators. And we'll have some fun too. Let's get started. that time of the summer when with a very serious look in her eye and wearing a tomato stained apron my wife will sternly approach me and say next year don't plant so many cherry tomato plants now in my defense there were only five cherry or grape-sized tomato plants in the ground sun gold sweet million gardener's delight juliet and valentine oh maybe a few big-sized tomatoes what seven or ten other plants who's counting still my wife is the one who has to do something with all those tomatoes so after spending the better part of a sunday in a hot kitchen roasting tomatoes i can understand her point of view Maybe you too are suffering from tomato burnout. Maybe there's zucchini overload in your household. Maybe it's a cornucopia of cucumbers. You are not alone. If you're a longtime listener to the Garden Basics podcast, you might be asking yourself about now as you're lugging in another bucket full of backyard produce, didn't I hear an episode about food banks and food pantries that gladly welcome excess garden produce? Yes, you did. Here then for you and for many, many others now who want to know an expanded encore edition of our interview with Gary Oppenheimer, the founder of AmpleHarvest.org. And maybe afterwards I can get my wife to share her roasted tomato recipe on the air with us. Every day in every corner of the United States, children and adults are worrying about finding enough food to put on the dinner table while thousands of pounds of food are being thrown away from backyard gardens, from small farms. Millions of Americans are unable to get enough fresh food to maintain proper health. The United States has a malnourished population that needs more than processed foods in order to thrive. So many incredible food banks, pantries, and other hunger organizations are working tirelessly to alleviate hunger in our communities, but they consistently lack in donations of fresh produce. Luckily, you can help. By making regular donations of unused fresh produce to your local food pantry, you can be a part of the solution to increase the health of people in your neighborhood. And you can donate food that you grow or food that you buy. It's easy. The trick is finding the food pantry nearest you. And you can do that through an incredible site called ampleharvest.org. 
We're talking with Gary Oppenheimer. He's with AmpleHarvest.org. He's the founder. It's a unique nationwide resource that is eliminating the waste of food, the outcome being a reduction in hunger and malnutrition, along with an improved environment. There's something like 42 million Americans who grow food in home gardens, community gardens, and their small farmers as well, who could easily donate their excess harvest to one of over 8,600 registered local food pantries spread across all 50 states. And Gary, I, I want to tell you, first of all, about my uh, experience with your website, ampleharvest.org. There is a page there where you can go and, and find the food pantry nearest you. And I set a search of 15-mile radius around my house. And up popped, I'm counting, 14 food pantries I never knew existed, including one that is within walking distance. And it's amazing how easy it could be for people who have an excess of tomatoes or squash or peppers or melons or fruit, where to take it to and how convenient that is. What was your inspiration, Gary, for starting AppleHarvest.org? That's a great question, actually. Uh, I, there are two things, of, two pieces of, in, of inspiration. One was I grew up with don't waste food. My grandparents always told me, you know, finish what's on your plate. Kids are starving in Europe. So not wasting food was always inculcated into me. Um, but as an adult and a master gardener, I was growing more food than I can use. And I couldn't, I didn't want to go to waste. My wife said, you can't bring any more of this stuff in the house. And I struggled to find a place to donate the food to. Um, I turns out I found a battered woman's shelter in my town. I'm in northern New Jersey. But when I had gone on Google to find out where are their food pantries, Google said the nearest one was 25 miles away in another city. And I had an epiphany in March of 09, and I realized, wait a minute, this is an information problem. This is not a food problem. People aren't hungry because America doesn't have enough food. We actually throw away half the produce, never gets consumed. The problem gardeners across America have always had was miss and missing information. The misinformation was what we were all told at food drives, that you can only donate jars or cans or boxes, but no fresh food. We gardeners took away from that, you can't donate the extra tomatoes. The missing information was where is a food pantry and what's a good day of the week and time of day to donate it. When I realized that this was the information problem, I realized the solution was a, a web-based, an internet-based uh, uh, program that would both educate gardeners about their capacity, that they can indeed donate food, and to where to donate it near them, and the optimum day of the week and time of day. And that timing is super important because if, you, if a food pantry, for argument's sake, was distributing food to hungry families on Sunday afternoons, the ideal time for you to bring it in is Sunday morning which means the ideal time for you to harvest is either a Sunday morning or Saturday night. So the food would go from your garden to the food pantry to a hungry family in hours. Number one, the food pantry didn't have to buy refrigeration. And number two, the hungry family was getting food fresher than you and I can buy in a supermarket. It's truly garden fresh food. And the whole thing came together for me in a one four hour um, session on, on my computer and seven weeks later, with the help of two volunteers, May 18, 2009, Ample Harvest Dog rolled out. And it's been growing in reach and impact ever since. We're going to be using a couple of terms here that people may get confused. I find it confusing as well. Maybe you can explain it. We will be talking about food banks and food pantries. What is the difference? Oh, this is a fun question. All right. 
for most of America, for all of America, a food bank is a large industrial warehouse type operation. There are around 200 of them in America. They're part of the Feeding America network. And these are large warehouses where large amounts of food come in and large amounts of food are then redistributed out to the local programs where hungry families go. Those local programs uh, where hungry families go, there are around 33,500 across America, are usually called a food pantry and in some states a food cupboard or food shelf or food closet. The exception, as far as I know, was Oregon and Washington where those local programs are also called food banks. And you said a little bit ago that I think in, in Sacramento they're also sometimes called food banks. So in the vernacular, in the common language of food banks where, where a hungry family gets food, but in the real system, the, there's a distinction. And the reason I had to create ampleharvest.org was because when the food went from uh, a food drive to a food bank to a food pantry, it took too long. But when it went from a food drive or my garden, for that matter, to a food pantry, it could happen in 15 minutes. So uh, this was an architectural discussion this this is great for linguistic nerds but it's um <laughs> if people want to use the word food bank that's perfectly fine but i'll use the word food pantry just to be more correct Ampleharvest.org is geared to a wide range of gardeners. You've got home gardeners, new gardeners, farmers and food producers, master gardeners, and school gardens. And boy, I'm thinking about food waste and all of a sudden, wow, school gardens? I wonder what they're doing with all that excess food that they're growing in their uh, little school, especially when it may be happening in the summertime and there isn't anybody there to harvest it. School gardens, you're absolutely right. It's also camp gardens, by the way. But a school garden, you've, you've planted the stuff, and then the kids are gone for the summer, and who's harvesting? Or the camp. The camp had a garden, and come the end of August or September, when kids go back to school, who's harvesting? So they have the opportunity to um, also donate the food. By the way, as do other places that don't think of themselves as gardens. You might have a golf course that has citrus fruits raining down. You might have a public park, for example. So there's lots and lots of opportunity for food to be donated from different places. The work we're doing is to enable as much wholesome, healthy, fresh, locally grown food to get to food pantries as possible. Because that not only reduces hunger across America, but it also improves the nation's health and well-being. Uh, the, the healthier your diet, obviously, the healthier you are. I'll just give you one number which blew me away when I learned about it. Cisco Systems, the internet company, did an analysis of ampleharvest.org uh, years ago. And it's online at ampleharvest.org slash study if you want to see it. And their analysis was if every gardener in America knew that he or she could donate food, sur their surplus food, and if every food pantry in America was on ampleharvest.org able to receive the food, the nation's health care costs would drop. $58 billion a year. I always believe that the word pharmacy should be spelled F-A-R-M-A-C-Y because uh, healthy, homegrown, fresh farm food is one of the best ways to get your health back. Absolutely. And when you think about two of the leading uh, causes of ill health in America are, are obesity and diabetes, which are both costly in terms of your own well-being and costly in terms of just the medical care involved, those are both diet-impacted diseases. You improve the diet, 
you reduce those diseases, you have a healthier and, frankly, by extension, a wealthier nation. One of the categories you have that you're appealing to is called new gardeners, but uh, there's a subset of that that we were talking about before the interview called the accidental gardener, and and they can also uh, participate with ampleharvest.org. Yeah, uh, I wrote a blog article about that earlier this year, the accidental gardener, and people ask, well, what's an accidental gardener? Either you're a gardener or you're not. And I had realized that if you buy a house, and the house came with a fruit tree that somebody previously planted, apples, oranges, what have you. You may not think of yourself as a gardener if you don't you know, get your fingers dirty and garden. But the reality is that every year the tree is raining down on you all this wonderful food, the apples and the oranges or what have you. And so I uh, describe that person as the accidental gardener. That person, too, has the opportunity to donate the food. I was named CNN Hero in April 2010. The day I was named CNN Hero, I received an email from somebody in the Southwest who said that the prior year before he'd heard of ampleharvest.org, he had thrown away eight 55-gallon drums of citrus fruit because he didn't know he could donate it. This is a huge opportunity for the um, country. And the reality is we haven't even started tackling that yet. So the $58 billion number was based on the, re- the gardeners who know they garden, not the accidental gardeners. So these numbers are all going to be subject to change. And I also want to give you other, one other number subject to change. You started this with saying there are 42 million gardeners in America. That's pre-COVID. The data we're now seeing from uh, partners in the industry uh, speaks to 58 million people, and it may well be growing higher as millions more people start their own gardens. And I strongly believe that when we get past COVID-19, most of the people who started gardening are going to continue to garden. That means more people gardening and more healthy, fresh food for the hungry families on a permanent basis. Look, one thing's really important. When you grow a garden, and I have my own garden, you're growing it for your own enjoyment and for your own family. You should be enjoying that food first. The food, however, that you grow that's in excess of what you can use or preserve or share with friends should never be going to waste. That's the food that should be donated to a local food pantry. And that's whether you're a backyard gardener or maybe you got herbs growing in a kitchen window or you're in a community garden, it doesn't really make any difference. And by the way, also the amount of surplus is not terribly important either. Don't feel bad. I only got five tomatoes to donate. Donate your five tomatoes. It'll be commingled with all the other people with five tomatoes and 500 pounds of tomatoes at the table. The important thing is that the food is eaten by somebody and nourishes somebody in the community. It's good for the community. Frankly, it's good for the planet because food waste is a contributing factor to climate change. And it's a wonderful way of people helping their neighbors in need by reaching into their backyards when they can't afford to reach into their back pocket. Today, we are at work, as you had said, in 50 states in about 4,200 communities. And today, we're approaching 9,000 food pantries, which is about a quarter of America's food pantries which is great. That means we have three quarters of America's food pantries yet reach, engage, and work with, and work with those surrounding gardeners. So we have a lot of work ahead of us, and your dollars certainly get us uh, a long way towards succeeding on that. If you've got excess food, you know where to go. Ampleharvest.org will aim you to the food pantry nearest you. Gary Oppenheimer is the founder of Ampleharvest.org. Gary, thanks for a few minutes of your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Everybody, please stay safe. I want to leave you with one final note. Um, In these COVID 
COVID time, we have guidance on the site for the gardener on how to be COVID safe when they're both growing the food for themselves and making the donation of food. So when you come to ampleharvest.org, take a moment, read the couple of bullet points on there. That'll keep you, the food, and the food pantry staff safe so that the good you're doing really is good and and, uh, nobody gets sick. So thank you very, very much. Roasted tomatoes add so much more tomato flavor to any recipe you prepare that calls for tomatoes. You can put it in pasta sauce, whole tomatoes, or diced tomatoes. It's an easy way to preserve the harvest for use throughout the year, either canned or frozen. Now, to preserve the most flavor, you need to roast them at a low temperature for a long period of time. Now, my wife Jeannie is here, and we have a convection oven. And the convection oven, our convection oven, uh, gets down to a pretty low temperature, doesn't it? Gets down to about 300 degrees. And that's where you want to roast tomatoes for a rather long period of time. All right, now you hauled all the tomatoes up to the kitchen. You literally had the buckets full of tomatoes. And what's nice, I mean, what made it a little bit easier for you is the fact that we were using cherry tomatoes and they didn't have to be peeled. Correct. I wouldn't use cherry tomatoes if I had to peel them. (laughs) Okay, well, yeah, you wouldn't. But uh, even with uh, larger tomatoes, you don't have to peel them either, do you, when you roast tomatoes? Correct. It's wonderful. All right. And you're doing this on cookie sheets. Is that right? Yes. And you put down parchment paper on it? Yes. All right. Now, how thick do you slice the tomatoes? Cherry tomatoes, I guess you'd only, what, cut them in half? You try to cut the cherry tomatoes in half and your other larger tomatoes about a quarter of an inch thick, approximately. And any sort of preparation when you lay them out on the cookie sheet? I just try to get as many as I can on one sheet to minimize how long I have to cook items. Are they in a single layer? Yes. Okay. And then do you do any preparation as far as anything else you add to that? If we have fresh basil in the garden, I will go collect some of that, chop it up, and add it to the mix. And if you have your favorite herb, you can certainly add it to the mix. Do you use any olive oil? Well, olive oil goes on at the end, and you drizzle that on, and... Well, at the end? At the end of the cooking process? No, at the beginning, okay. before you start cooking. All right, so you, as before you stick it in the oven, you put at least olive oil on it, and then what other, whatever herbs you would like. Correct. All right. How long do you, do you cook that tray of tomatoes? I have discovered with our convection oven, with cherry tomatoes, it's about 45 minutes before I switch trays. On the other, on the larger tomatoes, it's about an hour before I switch trays. What do you mean by switching trays? So when I switch trays, um, we have two trays in our oven. And at the halfway mark, I move the top sheet down to the bottom sheet and the bottom sheet up to the top sheet and then cook for another hour if it's the larger tomatoes or 45 minutes if it's the smaller tomatoes. So it's uh, 45 and 45 or 90 and 90 minutes if they're the larger tomatoes? Um, The larger tomatoes normally be an hour. When I'm Mm. doing the second round, I always cut the time a little lower and give it a check. And if I have to go 10 more minutes, I can, but I don't want to burn them. Okay, so total time in the oven then for those two trays is what, uh, an hour and a half to two hours? Yes. 
Okay. Now, what is what do the tomatoes look like when they're done? They've shrunk up a wee bit. They still have a little bit of moisture. They're not dried. Yeah, they're kind of wet. They're they're still wet. And the whole house important. the whole house smells like tomatoes. Yes. Yeah, it's not a bad smell. No. No. Okay. Now, what do you do with them? See, that's the beauty of this, of preserving these tomatoes, is you've got choices now what you can do with this big batch of roasted tomatoes. By the way, it was very impressive to what a small amount it actually comes out to be. How many trays did you do Sunday? I believe we did about eight to ten trays. I didn't count. And those eight to ten trays ended up, we filled a one-gallon freezer bag. A one-gallon freezer bag after eight to ten trays, hour and a half to two hours per two trays, four times two. Eight hours you spent in the kitchen. Well, the oven was going for eight hours. Yes. All right. Now, the beauty of this particular process that I like is I'm not forced into canning right now. I can freeze my tomatoes throughout the year. And then at the end of the year, after I'm all done, I can then do a massive canning batch. And how would you start that? You've got this big lump of bag of frozen roasted tomatoes. How would you prepare them for canning? Defrost and then decide what recipes we're going to do, whether we're going to make a pasta sauce, we're going to make soup, we're going to just dice and can. So we need to make a decision what we're going to cook. All right. Do you have to process those tomatoes any further? Do you put them through a food processor? I'll run up to the Cuisinart, the, oh. the food processor. Okay. With the big blade? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, and as you said, you, then we can make pasta sauce uh, or can it for soup. And it would be an easy soup, wouldn't it? Because when you're ready to grab a, a jar of that on a cold winter day, the only thing you'd need to add is uh, what water or milk. If we have it, some cream, but milk would work. But okay. cream makes it really yummy. All right. And that's tomato soup. And, of course, pasta sauce. We go through a lot of pasta sauce. So at the end of the season, you can mix those roasted tomatoes with uh, other things from the garden, like peppers, garlic, and onions. Yes. And basil. You can add more basil if you need it. Okay. Anything else? Yes. If you are going to do your large tomatoes, your preparation needs to include coring that tomato, whereas the cherries, it's just taking off the little green top and you're ready to go. Coring tomato, the, the core, there's sort of like that hard center, and that's fairly easy to take out, isn't it? Sure, just with a small paring knife. Which tomatoes do you choose to use? You know, we're doing a process to provide our family with really high-quality future sauces, soups, etc. Um, use the best fruit you have. Don't use really damaged fruit or cut off the damaged portion. And you get you start with good quality, you end up with good quality. All right. So nothing that's overripe and, and nothing that's still a little too green. Correct. Anything more you want to add? I, I'm good. Okay. You're good. Good. Well, thank you very much for your efforts in this behalf. <laughs> You're welcome, hon. Thank you. <laughs> the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. 
transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show, and other helpful links for even more information. Plus, you can listen to just the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. And you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. We have links to all our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, a link to the FarmerFred.com website. That's where you can find out more information about the radio shows. You remember radio, right? Now, if the place where you access the podcast doesn't have that information, you can find it all at our home podcaster, Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout Buzzsprout.com. Just look for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. You'll find a link to it in the show notes. Well, let's delve into the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com. John writes in, he asks, I saw a picture of your raised bed planters at your podcast. I'm assuming those are on your property. Mine are over 35 years old. They need to be replaced or repaired. What are the specs on your boxes? They look awesome. By the way, is that a glass of scotch in your hand? Uh, let me look, John. Nope, that's not scotch. I But... Thanks for the idea. The beds are about 16 inches high. Some are four feet wide by eight feet long. Some are four feet by four feet. And those are the exterior dimensions. They're constructed of redwood. And the sides are made out of two inch by eight inch on the sides. Obviously one on top of the other. But there are four by four inch support posts every four feet in the ground. Those two by eights then are topped with a two by six. That two by six gives a really nice area to sit on while you're pulling weeds or pulling crops. And by the way, the reason all my beds are four feet wide or less, that way you don't have to reach too far towards the middle when picking crops or pulling weeds. So try to keep your beds no more than four feet wide. After they were constructed, I treated them with a redwood water seal, and each bed contains five parallel half-inch drip irrigation lines. The emitters are spaced 12 inches apart, and the emitter spacing along the parallel lines are staggered, so more of the area gets evenly watered. There is a control valve in each bed, too, because in the case of some crops, you want to turn them off before they're ready to be harvested. Garlic and onions would be a good example of that. By the way, if you have a gopher issue, you may want to put hardware cloth lining the bottom and the sides before you fill it with soil. Hardware cloth is usually quarter inch or half inch mesh, and you got to bring it up the sides to keep the gophers from kind of weaseling their way in. As far as the space between beds, I like to keep about four feet between each of the garden beds. By the way, uh, the entire backyard is mulched, so it's all uh, arbor chips that are on the ground around the beds. But again, the beds are four feet apart. That's plenty of room for wheelbarrowing through or bringing a big trash can through or just uh, making your way through with buckets full of tomatoes. Now, you don't have to make your raised beds out of redwood. You can make them out of cedar, of course. You can make them out of brick or rock or, or whatever. But raised beds solve a whole host of problems. The soil warms up quicker in the spring, so you get a jump on planting. Weeds come out a lot easier, and it's much easier to amend the soils. One nice thing about having a garden is after you're done harvesting what you want from a plant is... Why not just leave the plant in the ground and see what happens? It might just flower. Things like 
basil, cilantro, carrots, radishes, onions, garlic. They all produce flowers, Debbie yeah, Flower. They do produce flowers. And sometimes you don't, sometimes you go on vacation or your plans change and you're not there to do the harvesting when the harvesting happens. Don't beat yourself up about it. Let them go to flower and they will attract some of those beneficial insects that help control the pest population in the rest of the garden. And by the way, if you grow onions and garlic and they set those flower heads, uh, I'm sure the onion and garlic expert in your neighborhood will tell you, oh, you better cut off those flowers because it'll make the uh, bulb very hard. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what you could do is maybe leave a few of those flower heads to develop on their own and they are beautiful they make good cut flowers messy but good cut flowers <laughs> and tasty too onion and garlic yes. seeds and and the fl- little. the little flower parts are, are very tasty yes throw them in a salad or yeah. whatever yeah 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 there's there's we're we're sort of uh tied to the things we see in the grocery store as the th- being the things that we can eat but there's a lot more that we're producing in the garden that is edible that we aren't necessarily taking advantage of But check some good sources before you start munching in your yard. Right. Not everything is edible. (laughs) Right. You may find that out on your own, but be careful out there. Debbie Flowers, a pleasure having you here in the studio with us. It was great to see the studio. I'm happy to be here. All right. We'll do it again. All right. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.